All right, friends. I think we'll get started. <laughs> Thank you for joining, one and all. It's nice to be with you. Um, even though it's not perfect, it is great that we're together in this way. We'll start out the way I should start out every Sunday morning. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Thumbs up. I just really like any kind of approval whatsoever, so getting all of your thumbs up just warms my heart, so thank you. Um, we've got some, you probably all noticed uh, Lisa and Yella have some extra family with them today. Chloe and Parker are there with them for the weekend, and I was really excited to see Chloe. Chloe's in kindergarten with me this year, and I was excited because we're actually going to be talking about kindergarten today. So I was I was teasing Chloe that she's gonna she's the professional she's gonna give the sermon today she knows all about kindergarten she's a kindergarten pro but as you can likely imagine in any classroom but particularly in kindergarten educators we need to find some way to motivate the five year olds towards proper behavior but it's important that we shape not just their little minds but their little behaviors and their little their little attitudes. And this isn't unique to kindergarten. Obviously, every teacher has carrots that they need to dangle in front of their students to get them to complete their work and listen intently and stop picking their noses or whatever it is that they need to work on. And so the system that we use is called PAT time. PAT is an acronym. It stands for Preferred Achievement Time, which is not a phrase that one would casually use around kindergartners and expect them to understand. I'm not really sure I even really understand what that means, Preferred Achievement Time. But um, the teachers in the school all have some form of PAT. In grade four, the teacher has, uh, he adds or subtracts minutes and seconds onto their running time. And once they get to 100 minutes, then they get a preferred uh, preferred activity. Oh, it's not preferred achievement, it's preferred activity. And so maybe the preferred, preferred activity is they wear pajamas for a day or they get to watch a movie. Grades one, two, and three, they have a marble system. They have two jars filled with, one's filled with marbles and one's empty. And every time they get caught doing something good or behaving or working, you move marbles into their jar. And once their jar is full, then they get a preferred activity. They've achieved a preferred activity. Um, in kindergarten, the system is a little more basic and a little more adorable. Because Pat is a character. He's a face made of felt. Whenever they're caught doing something good, Mrs. Stoiko or I add a piece of Pat. Maybe it's an eyebrow or a hat or an ear or my personal favorite, his mustache. I always love adding his mustache. Um, and once Pat's face is complete, then the class has earned Pat time. But for us, Pat time isn't a party or like bring a special stuffy to school or anything like that. For the last 30 minutes of every kindergarten day, the kids get to play freely. Usually this means bins of toys, small toys or maybe drawing on the whiteboard or doing crafts or building blocks, that sort of thing. That is, unless Pat is complete. If Pat is complete, then the great reward is that the kids get to choose bigger and noisier toys from out of the storage closet. So maybe the rescue hero toys, ooh. Or the play kitchen, ah. Or maybe dinosaurs or trucks or dolls or Play-Doh, wow. And it's kind of funny because they'll get to play with toys no matter what. They're getting their playtime for sure. But the toys in the closet have an air of mystique to them. They're very attractive and the kids are drawn to those special toys. And it's enough of a carrot to dangle in front of the five-year-olds that they're willing to sit crisscross applesauce for an extra five minutes if it gets them a chance at getting Pat time. But here's the problem with Pat. 
Sometimes his face is completed before the kids have even had their first recess. And when that happens, there's always several kids in every kindergarten class who can think of nothing else except the assurance of pat time at the end of the day. They hold you very tightly to your word, very, very claustrophobically tightly to the promise of pat time. Mr. Lance, you said we're having pat time today. Why are we drawing the number three? Why are we doing this garbage work when we could be having pat time? You promised me pat time. Where is my pat time? Mr. Lance, when do we get pat time? How much longer until pat time? Is it time now? Is it time now? Is it time now? And they just can't wait for pat time, knowing that it's coming. My personal favorite is, Mr. Lance, you promised pat time. As if I'm going to renege on the promise all of a sudden. It's 10 o'clock. Pat time's not for another five hours. Calm down. They will not allow you to forget the promise of sweet, sweet closet toys. They will demand their blessings. They refuse to allow you to relent on your pledge of blissful pat time. Now, don't get me wrong. They're appreciative. They're grateful and excited. They recognize they have no power in the situation, but they also know that they've earned the reward through appropriate behavior and work ethic. They've done all the hard work. Now they demand what they deserve. They're also not going to let you dare forget even for one dang second, that you have promised them this reward. And they helpfully remind you approximately every seven minutes. We get pat time today, right? You promised us, right? Yes, you will get your pat time. I haven't forgotten, but so help me, I'll rip that mustache clean off his face if you don't get back to work printing your letter G's. G is in get to work already. I don't talk to the children that way. Right, Chloe? Right, Chloe. But kids, they they know they have no authority, but they won't let you forget to use your authority for their benefit. All of which makes King David history's most famous and powerful kindergartner. Last week, David decided to build Yahweh a house. There were equal parts noble and self-serving reasons for this. If you didn't listen to the sermon last week, I encourage you to listen to it. It's part one of a three-part mini-series about 2 Samuel 7. Suffice it to say, instead of allowing David to build him a new house, Yahweh instead flips the script on the king and declares that he will instead be the God who builds David a new house. Not a fancy temple building like David was going to build for God, but rather God will build for David a house of kings, a royal lineage that will descend from his offspring and forever rule over Israel. There were other promises too. God promises to make David's name exceedingly great and to bring peace to all his people through the blessings that David will receive from the hands of Yahweh. But the pièce de résistance will be the house of kings that God will build from and for David. So last week we heard what God will do for David. This week, in the second half of chapter 7, we're going to hear David's response. And it's very similar to the five-year-olds completing their pat time. Although he has partly earned this blessing through his own faithfulness and heart for God, David will demonstrate wonderful humility and appreciation, recognizing God as the one with all the power, God as the authority figure. But he will also refuse to allow God to forget or relent or turn from the promises that he has made to the king. David will boldly hold God to his covenantal vows in the same way the kinders hold me to the promise of pat time. And it's very instructive for us today, whether we are five years old or 105 years old, David's response is very instructive to us. So let's begin by reading 2 Samuel 7, uh, the last half of it, beginning at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, which I assume means he went into the tabernacle. Um, not, not exactly sure, but and he said this, 
Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word, and according to your will, you have done this great thing, and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. You might remember how last week I talked about how this chapter, chapter 7, is one of the most crucially important chapters in the whole Bible. And it's important because of the covenant that God makes with David, but it's important also for David's response. David's response is very instructive to us. But can you see how, even as important as this is, can you see how David is behaving like my beloved kindergartners a little bit? David knows that he is small and powerless, and he's relying on the kindness of an authority figure, just like the kinders rely on the teacher or myself. And they... they, David, like the kindergartners, cling to the promises of blessings and they refuse to allow that authority figure to turn from his pledge, turn from his promises. Mr. Lance, the kids say to me, we are very small and we enjoy toys very much. And you told us that we could have pat time, so don't you dare forget. And it's the same, David's giving a similar response. God, I am a very small shepherd boy and I enjoy the rewards of service to you very much. And this covenantal promise guarantees my heart's greatest desire. My house will forever have favor in your sight. So God, don't you dare forget. Don't you dare let go of these promises you've made to me, is what David is bold enough to say to God. God has made three covenantal promises to David, and David responds in kind to each one. God began by putting David in his place, way back in verse 4 or 5 or whatever it is in this chapter, God puts David in his place, reminding the king that it was Yahweh who had lifted him up from obscurity to glory. You were just a little shepherd boy when I found you, and I made you king of all my people. And that leads to God's first promise, to make David's name exceedingly great. David's response to this first promise demonstrates an appropriately response of humility. David says, Who am I, sovereign lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. David says, I love that he takes that on at the end. Not just a mere human, just a mere shepherd boy from the middle of nowhere. In the light of his name being made great, David self-deprecates. He, he recognizes his lowly position in the presence of a God whose name is above all other names. 
this God whose name is above all other names, made David's name, which was nothing, into something great and glorious. And this God who willingly stoops down to our level to show kindness to mere humans, even nobodies from nowhere, like David, like myself. So that's David's response to the first promise of his name being made great. God's second promise to David expands out from one man and his dynasty to demonstrate love to all of his people. Not only will David be at peace and have a secure place in God's providential care, but all of Israel will enjoy those same blessings as well. All of Israel will have a place. All of Israel will have a peace. God says to David, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. So all of Israel will have peace and a place to belong with God. David responds to this promise as well. Looking back to the Exodus as God himself had done when he made his promises to David. And David says, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? You've established your people Israel as your own, very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. David recognizes that blessings for the king are blessings for all God's people, which is a very healthy thing for a leader to recognize. Whether you're a president, prime minister, premier, or a pastor, your primary job is to care for people. No matter what your leadership role is, your job as leader is to care for the people and guide the people in your charge. And that's true for David as well. David and his descendants must always remember this. They are shepherds. They are not pompous, entitled, elite kings. They are shepherds of God's sheep, as all leaders are, shepherds of sheep. Um, And David and his descendants have to remember this, and they have to know that the source of this care is ultimately the God who redeems from slavery and adopts his people as his very own special children. So, David responds to the promise of a great name. David responds to a promise of all Israel being a having a place and being at peace. And God's third promise to David is responded to by David as well. This is the big ticket item. God vows to establish David's house as kings over Israel forever. What David doesn't know is that this includes the Messiah who will descend from his lineage and will establish a new kind of Israel, the church, and a new kind of kingdom, since he will be a new, perfect kind of king. But David's response to this promise is perhaps the most interesting of all the responses, and the one that most charmingly reminds me of kindergarten, and how David responds to the big-ticket promise of an eternal lineage of kings. And his response is best found in verse 25, when he says, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promised. I love the language that David uses here. Keep it, God. Do it, God. He's, he won't let God off the hook in any capacity. You promised, now you got to do it, God. Can you imagine so boldly addressing a human king, let alone almighty creator God, saying, you promised it, now you got to do it. I can't imagine saying that even to my, my principal that I work with, like my boss at work, never mind God himself. Yahweh and David have both established David's lowliness and helplessness apart from Yahweh. They both know that David is nothing, and he came from nowhere and God made him great. 
And here's this scruffy little whippersnapper pointing his index finger at God and demanding faithfulness. The audacity. Can you imagine the audacity? Had he not possessed the proper attitude to go along with these demands, saying such things to Almighty God could have proven disastrous. If God, David had just walked up to the tabernacle and said, Hey, give me what you promised. I demand it right now. That would be a problem. But David, he makes his demands, but his demands are paired with a really beautiful attitude that we should all strive to, to imitate. Here's the thing about David's prayer. As bold as it is, the thing about David's prayer is it is not an outlier prayer in Scripture. I mean, you read the Psalms, which I hope you do. They're fantastic. You read the Psalms, and they are constantly yelling at God. They are constantly berating God. They are constantly questioning God. And sometimes it's a little like, that's a little, should we be saying that to God? But God allows it. God permits it. In fact, God desires his people to have that kind of relationship with him where we can openly question him. Now, if you're just questioning him, that is not healthy. And and I hope to outline here in the next few minutes how, how David's not just demanding. There, there's more to it. His attitude is very holy. And it includes demanding, but it includes a whole lot more. David is not going rogue by demanding God uphold his end of the bargain. It is very much part of the scriptural tradition to, to speak to God in this way. Instead, David's prayer stands as a model for all God's children in how we can approach our father, our good dad. And just as Jesus made clear to the annoyed disciples, we must become like the little kindergartners, as David does in this passage, we must become like the little kindergartners in our approach to the king and his kingdom. To paraphrase uh, a passage that Trish mentioned last week. The reason David's prayer is so beautifully instructive to us is because of the three primary attitudes he demonstrates within it. Deference, doxology, and demand. Three Ds, deference, doxology, and demand. Let me explain. Deference means to defer. It means to submit to the authority of someone else. It's to say, you know better than me, I will defer to you. Um, it means to have an attitude of respect towards someone else. So if if we're talking Edmonton Oilers stats, Angie will defer to me. She doesn't know a lot about the Oilers. When it comes to player statistics and, and player demographics, she has to defer to me. Uh, I am the authority figure when it comes to the Edmonton Oilers. However, if we're talking about literally anything else that grown-ups need to know about, I usually have to defer to her. Food preparation, budgeting, scheduling, child-rearing you know, actual important life decisions, then I wisely defer to Angie for all of it. I've got those Oilers stats locked down, but I have to defer to her for everything else. So that's deference. It's understanding somebody else knows better than you and submitting to their, their wisdom. David shows the appropriate deference towards God throughout this prayer. I love David's statement in verse 20. He says, what more can I, David, say to you? What could I possibly say to you, God? For you know me, your servant, sovereign Lord. You know me. David is acknowledging that God knows David better than David even knows David. And certainly better than David knows God. And that is an excellent starting point for any of us anytime we're approaching Almighty God. The understanding that, hey, you know me better than I'll ever begin to know you. You know me, God, better than I know myself. It's a, it's a good starting point. 
And so David defers to God's wisdom and understanding. Then in the next verse, David defers to God's glory as well. David says, For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done these great things and made it known to your servant. David knows Yahweh isn't making this glorious covenant just for the sake of David, but also for the glory of God's own word and God's own will. David is deferring wisdom. He is deferring glory. And he's also showing deference to God's authority. Did you notice how often the phrase sovereign Lord or something similar appears in this passage? From verses 18 to 29, it's used 10 times, at least by my count. And each one is a tremendously deferential statement. This is the highest title that the Israelites use when addressing Yahweh, Sovereign Lord, God Almighty. By constantly referring to God as Sovereign Lord or Lord Almighty, David is deferring to God's commanding superiority and awesome authority. David is stating repeatedly that while he and his sons are kings, there is only one true king of all kings, and his title is Sovereign Lord. So even how he addresses God shows deference. So David shows deference to Yahweh, contrasting God's magnificence to David's own insignificance. He recognizes he has no rightful claim to wisdom, glory, or authority. God possesses all of it and chooses to share it with his children, whom he loves so endlessly and so graciously. And that is the proper starting point whenever we are addressing this same God. This understanding that he has all the power, all the wisdom, all the authority, all the glory, and I am nothing except what he makes me into. That's the proper starting point for addressing God. But it's not the only proper attitude. In fact, deference by itself is only a third of the picture. And our prayers and our lives are wildly ineffective if it's purely deferential. If we're all deference, if we're all humility and lowliness, we're missing the whole picture. If we're just purely deferential if we're just lowliness, then that would lead to silence and guilt and spiritual impotence. If I see myself as just a worm, just nothing in the presence of God, then my prayers are going to be ineffective. My service is going to be ineffective because that's not the whole picture. Therefore, our deference to God should be coupled with doxology and demand. Or in gentler terms, doxology means praise and requests. Let me explain again. Doxology is an old church word that I love. The Greek word doxa means praise, honor, and glory. So a doxology, therefore, is the giving of those things over to God, the giving of praise to God, the giving of honor and glory to God, usually in the form of spoken words or chants or singing generally in a group setting. That's what a doxology is. So when we say the Lord's Prayer together, as Shane always makes us do when we do communion, as Hootmers always do around the dinner table, when we say the Lord's Prayer together, that's a doxology. When we sing above all, as we just did half an hour ago together, that's a doxology. Doxology is just a fancy word for the praise and glorification of God. If our prayers are all deference and no doxology, then they're just a little bit pathetic. And prayer is never meant to be pathetic. It's meant to be empowering. David demonstrates doxology throughout his response to God's covenantal promises. His whole response to God is infused with praise and thanksgiving. He says things like, How great are you, sovereign Lord? That, those are words of praise. He says, You have done this great thing. It's words of thankfulness. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. 
That's praise. That's doxology. He says, your name will be great forever. He says, sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Praise, 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 and more praise. David can't go more than a sentence or two before returning back to undignified praise. That word undignified from a couple weeks ago. He can't go more than a, a few lines without returning to praise to the God who he loves dearly and who he knows he is dearly loved by in return. When talking to God, as I hope you do frequently, when talking to God, it is generally a good idea to soak your humble deference and hearty requests with heaping helpings of praise. It just makes sense to spend a lot of time in prayer praising the God you're praying to. This helps you keep the proper perspective. It reminds you of his greatness and his goodness, which will give purpose to your humility. If you're just lowly, then there's no purpose to that. But if you're lowly because he is magnificent and he is great, then it gives purpose to your humility. It also offers supporting evidence to your requests. You're going to ask him something. And because he is so praiseworthy, because he is so great and glorious and loving and kind, then you have reason to approach him. He deserves the praise. So it's it's probably a good idea to regularly pray prayers that are just praise to God. To just take a second and praise him for, for how great he is. He deserves it. And besides, as a parent, isn't it tiring when your children come to you just for stuff they want? Well, I think it's the same with God. It, your, your father wants you to come to him with your requests, as we'll talk about here in a minute. But if that's all you ever do is just come to him with your demands and your requests... Don't you think that'd be a little tiresome? Isn't it good to just hear how great you are as a parent? Wouldn't it be wonderful if these three just came up to us and sat at our feet and said how spectacular we are as parents? It doesn't happen very often, but wouldn't it be great? And I think it's the same with God. Pepper your prayers with doxology, and I'm quite sure you will feel his presence more, and I'm pretty sure it will make your prayers more effective. And speaking of effective... Let's get to the third element of David's effective response to, to God. We've talked about deference, which is humility and lowliness. We've talked about doxology, which is prayer and thanksgiving. But here, let's add the third element. Your prayers are not complete without this third element, and that is demand. Demand. Your prayers should include deference, they should include doxology, but they should also include demand. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't demand too harsh a word for addressing Almighty God? Shouldn't it be ask or request or appeal? A lot softer words. And sure, those are all appropriate words. Absolutely. Much more deferential to ask of God instead of demand of God. But I like the word demand. And not just because it makes my three-word list and alliteration. Deference, doxology, and request just doesn't sound as good. It needs to start with a D. So we're going with demand. But I like the word demand because it's fitting for David's attitude in 2 Samuel 7 as well. And it's fitting for our relationship with Yahweh too. A quick clarification. When I say demand, I don't mean hands on your hips, furrowed brow, shaking your fists at God to get what you want kind of demand. It's not God, I demand an upgrade to this house. It's not God, I demand a fuller bank account. It's not demanding selfish things. And we'll talk about that in a second. You certainly wouldn't be able to make a very strong argument that David shows that kind of demanding posture to God in 2 Samuel 7, where he's just hands on his fists. Give me that great name right now. Give me that lineage of kings right now. I want it. Now, he's, not, he's not selfish in any way in this prayer. However, when I say demand, 
I mean it in the sense of the kindergartners demanding their pat time. Approaching God with an assurance of blessing. They know they're going to get it. And, and it's the same with us with God. We know that he will be true to his promises. And it means basing our requests on the promises that he himself has already made. That's what I mean by demand. Basing our requests on the promises that he has already made. For David, this part of the prayer comes at the very end. He's established the proper deferential order of things. David is lowly. Yahweh is glorious. He's established the proper doxological focus. Glory is not David's. It belongs to the mighty, compassionate Yahweh, who he is talking to. God is worthy of praise, and David is very privileged to offer that praise to him. So with deference and doxology in place, David then moves to his humble demand. In verse 27, David gives the reason why he is emboldened to present this demand to Yahweh in the first place. David says, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Because you've promised this thing, I have courage to come before your throne and demand it. That's why David is bold enough to, to come to God, because God has made the promise in the first place. And because God has made this promise, and because God is faithful and true to uphold his promises, David has no issue approaching God and holding God accountable. Just like a five-year-old looking me straight in the eye and stating, Mr. Lance, you promised me pat time. Make sure you give it to us. And that's exactly what David is doing to his father. Now, if delivered with the wrong tone, a statement like that would invite the wrath of Mr. Lance. If, Mr. Lance, I demand my playtime right now, that would not make me pleased. I would have some words to say to this child, bold enough to be so rude to an authority figure. But mix in humility and praise, and I'm susceptible to even the most boldest claim. If if they come up and say, Mr. Lance, you're wonderful. I love you, Mr. Lance. You're the greatest Mr. Lance in this whole kindergarten room. Can I now have my Lego? Well, I might be more willing to listen to that. <laughs> Angie's rolling her eyes, but if you mix in humility and you mix in praise, most of us will cave a little more willingly if you mix in those things. And so it is with God. Not that he's caving. He knows what's best for us. But we're free to demand uh, that he remain faithful to his promises. In, in fact, he invites just such a relationship with his children. Make sure those requests are paired with humble deference and thankful praise. If, if it's too deferential, then we're rendered silent and immobile by God's greatness. We're just we're going to be frozen by our smallness. If it's too demanding, then we'll be rendered self-serving and arrogant before our holy God. Being too doxological isn't really a problem. There's no such thing as praising God too much. But our Father does welcome us to a parent-child kind of relationship, which involves asking for our needs. But notice how David frames his demands. This is another crucial lesson for us today as well. Here's verse 26 as an example. David says, And now, Lord God, do as you promised. Why? So that your name will be great forever. Then people will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Even as God is or sorry, even as David is demanding that God uphold his end of the covenantal promises, which by the way, God has the tougher end of the covenant always to uphold, but even as David demands God uphold his end of the bargain, David is still keeping his focus on God's will and God's glory. David refuses to, to demand solely for his own benefit. 
He knows that as God's will unfolds in his life, the results are twofold. First of all, David and his descendants will be blessed. And second of all, and more importantly of all, Yahweh will be glorified. Even when he makes his petitions to Almighty God, David keeps God's glory at the forefront. Do as you've promised, not just so the name of David will be great forever, but so the name of Yahweh will be great forever. Fulfill these incredible promises, David demands, not just for the fame and glory of David's lineage, but also for the fame and glory of you, Yahweh. Then people will be awestruck by your faithful love. As you pour out love to to me and my lineage, then people will be awestruck by it, and it will lead to praise of God. Like our kindergartners recognizing that their good behavior will benefit their classmates as well, David recognized that recognizes he's not the only one who benefits from these covenantal vows. All David's descendants will benefit, all of Israel will benefit, all of humanity will benefit, and ultimately, God himself will benefit from this new covenant as much as David does. So David demands fulfillment of God's promises, but he does so with humility and with praise, with deference and doxology. And even as he makes his demands, he does so with a focus on God's will and God's glory. David has a greater kingdom than his own in mind, I Usually when I pray, I have the kingdom of Chris Lance in mind. David has a greater kingdom in mind and a greater lineage than his own in mind. And he has a greater throne than his own in mind. He has the throne of Yahweh in his mind while he's praying these things. And I think we can learn an awful lot from that. Take, for example, the model of prayer that Jesus offers us. And I'm almost done. I'm just going to talk about this quickly. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the Lord's people's prayer. And here's what it says in Matthew 6. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans do, for they think they will be heard just because of their many words, which is something I can be guilty of in my prayer life. I think if I just pray and say the right words, then God will have to honor it. But that's not how it works. Don't be like them, Jesus says, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the model that God's people are called to pray. Not that we say that exact prayer every time, but our prayer should be based, all of our prayers should be based on this model. God the Father knows what you need because he's a good dad, so feel free to take him up on his promises as any kid would for a good dad. Come boldly to his throne, knowing you are welcome to his presence, and make your demands with deference and doxology. All three Ds are there in Jesus' model prayer. Is there deference in the Lord's Prayer? You bet there is. He is our Father. First of all, he's addressed as Father. He's not our shopkeeper. He's not our servant. He's our Father, which is the proper term for God. When we pray, we don't say, My kingdom come. We say, your kingdom come. We say, your will be done, not my own. We recognize that he is provider of our most basic needs, even daily bread. I, We've got a house full of good food that we need to survive. And I like to think that because me and Angie work for it, we provided it for our girls. But that's not how it is. God has provided our daily needs for us. That's an act of deference, rec- recognizing that I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the provider. My father is the provider. Even daily bread comes from him. He graciously forgives us our many imperfections, which, by the way, there are many. We have many debts. That's an act of deference, recognizing how broken we are. 
And there's a not too subtle reminder that we need to be forgiving in the same way, like our Father is. He alone has the power to deliver us from evil and temptation. On my own, I am weak and and powerless to, to combat those things. That's an act of deference, recognizing that he gives me the power to combat evil and temptation. So the Lord's Prayer is deference, deference, deference. It's all humility and lowliness. This, this whole prayer model is seeped in humility and proper understanding of our position before Almighty God. But there's also demand, right? There's also requests, bold requests. And those demands are couched in a desire to see God's will and God's glory brought from heaven to earth. I don't demand these things just for myself. I don't demand my daily bread just for myself. I don't demand forgiveness just for myself. We humbly demand, God, that you fulfill your promise to bring heaven to earth. We humbly demand that you provide us with our most basic needs. Otherwise, how could we serve you effectively? We humbly demand that you fulfill your promise to forgive all our sins, even as we recognize that we have a role to play in that process of forgiveness. We recognize that everything we have comes from you, God, and as a good father, we urge you to show your love to us so that we, in turn, can show our love back to you, God. And infused throughout this prayer, along with deference and demand, is doxology, praise and thanksgiving and glory. Just in this handful of verses in Matthew 6, he is a father who knows us. He is a fa- These are the words that it uses. He is a father who knows us, cares for us, provides for us, forgives us, leads us, and delivers us. Just in those, what, eight lines? Those are all the the words of praise that are used to God. He does everything for us. He cares for us completely. He loves us completely. He is a faithful God who remembers his promises and will give us all we need in order to bring his beautiful kingdom to this broken world. As with David, too much deference leaves us weak and wilted, unwilling to come before the throne because we're just little lowly worms. But too much demanding renders us unconcerned with his will and his glory. It leaves us self-obsessed and arrogant. Too much doxology, you might not think there's much of a problem, but if there's too much doxology and he remains a remote being in the sky, if there's no deference and no demand in all doxology, then we risk risk missing his day-to-day, minute-to-minute involvement in our lives, like the excellent father he is. David's prayer, like the Lord's prayer, is a potent mix of all three Ds, humble deference, praise-filled doxology, and bold demands, all of it focused on God's will and God's glory above our own desires. That is the perfect attitude to have when we approach our God. Deference, doxology, and demand with him as our focus, not ourselves. If we can pray that way, more than that, if we can live that way, then we are truly following in the footsteps of our rabbi, Jesus. It's an attitude of, I don't deserve these incredible promises, but since you offered, and then holding him to them. Just in closing, I've talked a lot about promises he's made and and holding him to those promises. That's a real key to everything I've said here. David receives some very specific promises, a great name, a place and a peace, and a line of kings. We share in some of those promises, but I want to know real quick if you could unmute and share what are some of the promises of Jesus that you cling to? And I'm going to use those promises for my last closing paragraph. 
what are some of the promises of, of God that you cling to? Eternal life. Thank you, Trish. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of my primary motivation for doing anything as a Christian is knowing that this is a good life now and will carry into eternity. Absolutely. He'll never forsake us. Oh, what a good one. He'll never leave us or forsake us. That he's always with us. His presence is always with us. Thank you, Mary. That's so beautiful. Yeah, mine, mine's similar to what you said there, Chris. It's, uh, there's, there's no better life. It's uh, life and life more abundant in Christ. What a blessing. Oh, that's really well said. The abundant life that we have. Yes, thank you, Bob. I really like the um, that he has conquered death and that death is not something to fear um, and that, yeah, the eternity on the other end is so much, so exciting. Mm-hmm. Really well said. That he's conquered the grave. Absolutely. That goes with that goes with eternal life. That not only do we have life now and into eternity, but we've conquered death now and into eternity. Thank you, Lisa. He has given us forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There. I don't know about you. I, I, since you're saying it, I'm, I'm sure it's true for you too, Andrew. But for me, that is sometimes the hardest promise to cling to. How could he forgive me? Like as broken as I am, but he does. He promises to forgive us. And what a beautiful promise that is. Thank you, Andrew. Those are all really excellent. Thank you for sharing them. All right. Well, we could go on and on. God has made a lot of promises. All you need to do is Google promises of God and you'll get a thousand blog posts about all the many promises that God has given us. But you guys have outlined, I think, the most powerful, the ones that are most transformative, the the promises that we cling to the hardiest, things like eternal life, conquering the grave, forgiveness, those are the big ticket promises that we we hinge our entire life and our entire faith on. Well, like David in 2 Samuel 7, or like a kindergartner who has completed the felt face of Pat, we are invited to hold God to each one of those glorious promises. When his promises are fulfilled in us, the blessings blossom for each of us individually, for each for all of us communally, for our neighbors around us, and ultimately, and most importantly, for God himself. When we hold him to his promises, everyone benefits. We benefit personally, we benefit as a church communally, Clyde benefits, and and most importantly, the kingdom of God benefits when we hold him to his promises. The glory spreads and multiplies, just like the mustard seed in the parable. When his covenantal promises are fulfilled in his people, the praise blossoms, the, the... Blessings blossom. Everything that is good, everything that is eternal life blossoms when we hold God to his promises. So people of God, children of the most loving father, each one of us today, don't be afraid to demand your birthrights as adopted children of the king. Don't be afraid to demand your birthrights. Do it with humility and with praise and with a focus on his kingdom, not our own as David does, but demand from your God, these promises he's made, and he will absolutely honor your requests. If you have him and his kingdom in mind, rather than your own kingdom, if you are humble and filled with praise, you can ask him for anything and he'll give it. That's what Jesus promises, I think, in John 14. Ask me anything and I'll do it. If you have his kingdom in mind, if you are humble and filled with praise and thanksgiving, he will honor your your. Requests, And then we, his children, 
will get to play together with the divine dinosaur toys and dress up clothing and other greater blessings from the great toy closet of the king. There are many blessings and many rewards that he promises. Hold him to those promises and see how your faith and your life are enriched. A lot of you, by the way, are models of this kind of prayer, this kind of selfless kingdom-focused prayer, this concern for yourself, but only so that yourself can serve him better. You are models of this, and I really admire that about you. I admire your deference, your humility. I admire your doxology, your praise, and your giving of thanks. And I admire how you demand, how you you won't let God off the hook for the things that he promises. And it is, it's beautiful every time. And that can be your attitude personally. That can be our attitude communally. Um, deference, doxology, and demand. Let's pray. Let's pray a prayer of deference, doxology. You can test me out, see if I follow my own advice right now. See if I do it. Father God, you are so good. And we are so thankful for your goodness to us and through us. Because you are so good, you promise good things for us, God. And we love experiencing those good things. And, and we ask, we, we demand that you fulfill those promises in us and through us. Not just for our sake, but for your sake. And so we pray for things like an abundant life now, an eternal life now. We pray for living water that quenches and fulfills and spills out of us to those around us. We pray that you would conquer death, not just when we die physically, but that you would pray that you would conquer death in us now, that you would strip away the dead things in us and make us more like your son. Father, you, you've given so many great promises, forgiveness, redemption, adoption, and we cling to each one of these promises, knowing that you are a, a faithful father who knows what's best for his children. I pray that we, as your children, would always be humble and deferential. I pray we would also be filled with praise and thanksgiving, that we would be a people of doxology. But I pray that we would also ask, request, appeal, and demand that you uphold your end of the covenant. And we know that you always will not just for our sakes, but for the sakes of those around us and for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. Thank you so much, Jesus, uh, for the lesson that we, uh, yeah, for the lesson that we have in you. You lived your life in deference, doxology, and demand to your father. And I pray we would do the same, just like David does. We pray all these things as your children, Father. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, fellow children of the King, um, have a great week. I, 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 would ask that you test this out this week. Pepper your prayer with with more um, purposeful uh, doxology, demand, um, and deference, and, and see if there's any pleasant side effects from it. Try it out. All right, have a great week. Love you guys. Humble deference, praise-filled doxology, and bold demands. All of it focused on God's will and God's glory above our own desires. That is the perfect attitude to have when we approach our God. My favorite part about every Sunday is the moment when Sharon realizes she's not muted. It's great. We don't have toddlers. We've got preteens, and it is not anywhere near that clean. So. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of when uh, I had a teenager in the house and that. Uh, she all her clothes were on the floor of her room, 
And I said, well, why, why do you do that? Why don't you hang up? She says, well, I can find them this way. Oh, man. <laughs> Deacon's trying not to make eye contact right now. She says, oh, what? Well, what are you talking about? Best thing to do would just be to have two houses and then every spring move in together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Problem solved. <laughs> All right, well, you go, in your prayers this week, you go demand a second house from God. <laughs> See where that gets you. In humility and yes. with praise. Sure. 